Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Fargo, North Dakota. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Savannah LaFontaine Graywin was an independent, outgoing, kind, and selfless 22-year-old. She was a member of the Spirit Lake tribe, and her family was her world. She, her parents, her brother, and her sister all lived together in an apartment in Fargo, North Dakota, but Savannah was going to be moving out soon. She was expecting her first child, a girl with her boyfriend Ashton, who she'd been with since she was 15, and they were going to name their daughter Hazley Joe. The couple was set to move into their own apartment on September 1st in preparation for their sweet baby girl who'd be arriving just 19 days later, but that move would never happen. The apartment building Savannah and her family lived in wasn't a big one. It was more like a large house split into seven apartments, which was three stories tall. Savannah lived on the bottom floor. A little before 1.30 p.m. on Saturday, August 19, 2017, the Globe reports that Savannah's 38-year-old neighbor, Brooke, who lived on the third floor in apartment 5, knocked on her door to see if Brooke would come try on a dress so she could pin it before sewing. She told her it wouldn't take long. Savannah didn't know Brooke particularly well, but they were neighbors, and Brooke had offered her $20 for her time, and Savannah had an hour and a half or so before she needed to give her brother a ride to work, so she thought nothing of it. She told Brooke to give her a minute and that she'd be right up. Savannah, being 35 weeks pregnant, ordered a pizza so she'd have it when she got back, texted her mom what she was doing, and according to the forum, continued a cute little back-and-forth conversation with her boyfriend as she headed upstairs. By 2.30, it was getting close to the time that she'd need to give her brother that ride, so her brother went upstairs to get her. He knocked on the door, but no one answered, though the Globe reports that he did hear what he thought was a sewing machine. When he came back down without Savannah, his father went upstairs. When her father knocked, he did get an answer. It was Brooke. She told him that she and Savannah weren't done working on the dress yet. Savannah didn't come downstairs in time to take her brother to work, so her mother took him instead. When she got back, she went upstairs herself to see what was taking so long, but according to KVLY, Brooke told her that Savannah had already left, which didn't sound right at all. Her car was still at the apartment, she hadn't taken her keys or her wallet, she'd never come back to get that pizza she ordered, and frankly, she was very, very pregnant. She had posted on her Facebook about having trouble breathing at this point in her pregnancy, and her mom told the Globe that her feet were swollen. Getting up to that third floor would have been a workout enough. Savannah definitely wasn't volunteering for any long walks around the block, and it wasn't like her to just leave without telling anyone, let alone stand her brother up when it was time to take him to work. Her mom tried getting a hold of her, but her phone was off, and Ashton, Savannah's boyfriend, also noted that Savannah had abruptly stopped texting him back around 1.30, which would have been about the time that she went into the neighbor's apartment. By 4.30, Savannah's mom knew that something was wrong and reported her missing. Police responded immediately, and the family told them that the last time they saw or spoke to her was before she went up to Brooke's apartment. Officers headed up to the third floor and knocked on the door, and Brooke answered almost immediately. They told her they were looking for her neighbor Savannah and asked if they could do a quick search around the apartment. 
KVLY reports that Brooke didn't seem to have a problem with this at all. She consented to the search and police took a look around. This wasn't a search warrant, it was just a visual search looking in each room to see if Savannah was up there, but she wasn't. It was just Brooke and her 32-year-old boyfriend who had recently gotten home from work. The police didn't notice anything suspicious about the apartment, so they left, but the investigation continued. By 10.30 p.m., there was still no sign of Savannah, so police tried their hand at another look around Brooke's apartment. Once again, she consented, they took a gander, didn't see anything suspicious, and left. Saturday turned into Sunday, and when her family woke up, Savannah still wasn't there. Her car was in the exact same spot it was the night before, and her phone was still going straight to voicemail. It was like she'd vanished into thin air. Police continued their search for her and wound up back at that third-floor apartment for a third time, and for the third time, Brooke let them in, only to find nothing. The family obviously felt defeated at this point. According to the forum, Savannah's mom wasn't particularly fond of Brooke to begin with. She told the outlet that just two weeks prior to Savannah's disappearance, Brooke, who again they only knew through passing, knocked on the door asking if Savannah wanted to smoke some weed. Savannah didn't know her from shit and was clearly very pregnant and said no, but the whole situation seemed odd and as a mom, the entire thing rubbed her the wrong way. Savannah's mom knew something must have happened in that apartment. She had a gut feeling, and frankly, it was the last place Savannah was known to have gone. All communication with her daughter had stopped when she went up there, so it was the most logical explanation. But the police kept finding nothing. By Monday the 21st, KVLY reports that the police brought in a scent tracking dog to see if they could get any idea of where Savannah might have gone. I mean, it was two days into the investigation, but it was better than nothing. But the hope the dogs brought came and went when they led to nothing. Which seemed odd since Savannah literally lived in that building and had for some time. At this point, her family decided to start their own searches, starting from the apartment building and panning out, and leaving missing persons flyers anywhere they could. But again, they found nothing. On Tuesday the 22nd, police sent out search teams by air and water covering the surrounding areas and the Red River, and continued interviewing Savannah's family, friends, and co-workers to see if they knew anything. Two more days passed, and there were still no signs of Savannah, so her family held a candlelight vigil. They wanted everyone in the community to know that she was missing and that there was a $7,000 reward for any information that led to finding her. The vigil was somber, and the worry and pain on her family's voices couldn't be ignored, but it looked like police might have gotten a break in the case— because according to KVLY, police were seen knocking on doors in the 1800 block of 2nd Avenue in Grand Forks. The outlet reports that they were showing residents a picture of Savannah and a picture of four men. Grand Forks was over an hour away. Savannah's car had never left. Brooke had never left. I mean, she was there for two searches on the day Savannah went missing and was there the following day for that third search. Savannah certainly hadn't walked 80 miles, and no one had seen anyone come and pick her up between 2.30 when Brooke told her dad they were still working on the dress, and 4.30 when she was reported missing. So why were police so far away, and who were these four men in the picture? Rumors started circling that police were looking for these four men in connection to Savannah's disappearance, but they were quick to tell the forum that they weren't looking for anyone. Well, they weren't looking for any of those men. 
They mentioned that they were out corroborating statements. Were they trying to verify someone's alibi? With the investigation gaining speed, some neighbors from the second floor came forward with some information. According to People.com, the neighbors in the apartment directly below Brooke and Williams said that they'd heard what sounded like banging in the upstairs bathroom around 1.30 or 2 o'clock when Savannah would have been up there. They said the banging last 15 or 20 minutes before it stopped, and then they heard the shower turn on. With that new information, all the distraction from Grand Forks and the four men seemed to calm down, and the suspicion was back to that apartment on the third floor. Savannah's family was beyond frustrated at this point. I can imagine they just wanted to break down that door and do their own search and ask them where the fuck their daughter was— but the police was about to do that for them. Around 2.30 p.m. on Thursday, August 24, 2017, officers evacuated the apartment building, well, everyone except the tenants in apartment 5 on the third floor. This time, they had a warrant. How were they able to get one? It turns out William had come to work tired on Monday, telling one of his co-workers that Brooke had had a baby. Police knocked on the door and no one answered, so boom goes the door while everyone watched and waited from across the street. Bystanders heard a woman scream and then nothing, until an officer walked outside holding a baby, a baby girl. They put her into an ambulance and took her to the hospital. I don't think there was a single witness who didn't have their jaw on the ground at this point. They had gone in looking for a very pregnant Savannah and come out with a baby. Law enforcement took Savannah's family aside and briefed them on what was going on, and according to the Washington Times, were told that they'd found a healthy two-day-old baby girl. WDAY reports that they were told the baby had been brought into the apartment within the last two days using a suitcase. A member of Savannah's family told KVLY that Savannah's mom had seen Brooke coming in and out of her apartment with a large laundry basket and a suitcase in the last two days and had actually said, I bet the baby's in there. Needless to say, Brooke was taken in for questioning. William was at work at the time, but police went ahead and picked him up too. KVVR reports authorities spent the rest of the day going in and out of their apartment and vehicles loading evidence into police cruisers. At this point, everyone had a million questions. If that baby girl was Savannah's, where was she when police had done those three consent searches? Had Savannah been grabbed before she made it up the stairs? Had she been taken to another location? Savannah had been missing for five days. If this baby was two days old, where was Savannah for three days before she gave birth and Brooke and William wound up with her baby? No one had heard the screams of anyone in labor, and she still had five weeks to go before her due date, which led to even more questions. Had Savannah gone into labor naturally five weeks early at another location, or worse, had someone taken the baby out of her? And how the fuck did Brooke and William think they were going to magically produce a baby while under suspicion of the disappearance of their very pregnant neighbor and no one would notice? According to the Grand Forks Herald, Brooke and William had at least nine children between the two of them, all with other partners, none of whom they had custody of. William had actually pled guilty to child neglect or abuse in 2012 after showing up to the hospital with his then-infant 
who had skull fractures they deemed couldn't have been caused from an accident. The following day, police got to work trying to confirm through DNA that the baby girl found in apartment 5 was, in fact, Savannah's baby, Hazley Joe. Though it seemed like they already knew to some extent, because Brooke and William were both charged with felony conspiracy to attempt kidnapping. Brooke and William couldn't be charged with that if they were just in possession of a baby that Brooke had given birth to the prior weekend. And without any DNA results to prove the baby was Hazley Joe, it sounds like someone was talking. A press conference was held later that day where they confirmed that both Brooke and William admitted that the baby was in fact Savannah's. However, after that revelation, both stopped cooperating. And while it was pretty apparent they'd found Hazley Joe, Savannah was still missing. They asked the public to check their outbuildings for any signs of forced entry and asked landlords to check any vacant apartments. They even asked people to check dumpsters. I can't even begin to imagine what her family was going through when law enforcement instructed the public to look in dumpsters for their missing daughter, but that was their reality. Police also asked that anyone who saw a grayish-green Jeep with Minnesota plates driving around on Saturday the 19th or Sunday the 20th to contact police. The Jeep in question belonged to William. With that, volunteers from all over the community started searching around the apartment one block at a time, and members of the Turtle Mountain tribe started searching around the Red River. By August 26, the Duluth News Tribune reported that police had searched 35 different areas based on GPS and connections to the suspects. The Bemidji Pioneer noted that police had even brought in specially trained placenta-sniffing dogs, which I didn't even know was a thing. And still they found nothing. But all of that was about to change. Around 7.30 p.m. on Sunday, August 27th, a huge police presence was noticed around the bridge that connects North Dakota and Minnesota. Less than two hours later, police confirmed that they'd found the body of 22-year-old Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. WDAY reports that Savannah's parents had to be brought in to identify her body, which they did by confirming that the Too Beautiful for Earth tattoo on the victim's foot was hers. Kayakers had found Savannah's body caught on a tree in the Red River wrapped in black trash bags and duct tape. At the press conference that followed, police announced that Brooke and William had officially been charged with conspiracy to commit murder and giving false information on top of their charges for conspiracy to commit kidnapping. They were both held on a $2 million bond. While they'd finally found Savannah, they still didn't know where she'd been killed. There was talk of an abandoned farmhouse near where she was found that a breast pump had reportedly been found in, and while that raised more than a lot of suspicions about it being a possible second location where Savannah could have been held, it wound up being not related. After Brooke and William were officially charged in connection to Savannah's murder, their arrest document was released, and it's pretty clear that Brooke and William were questioned separately because they both had wildly different versions of events. William told police that he'd come home from work at 2.30 on the 19th to find Brooke cleaning up blood in the bathroom. He said she presented him with a baby, saying, This is our baby. This is our family. 
He admitted that he'd taken out garbage bags full of bloody towels and bloody shoes and that he'd put them in a dumpster at another apartment in West Fargo. The blood in the bathroom story matches up with the apartment beneath them hearing loud banging when Savannah would have been in their apartment, but who goes to another dumpster to get rid of bloody towels and shoes that supposedly only have the blood of your girlfriend on them? Brooke told police a completely different story. According to her, when Savannah came over that day, Brooke told her how to self-induce labor by breaking her own water. Anyone who's ever had a baby is cringing right now. She says that after that, Savannah left the apartment and then came back at 3.30 a.m. on the 21st, that's two days after she disappeared, and gave her her baby. So tell me then, why is Williams saying the baby entered their life on the 19th if Savannah gave them the baby in the middle of the night on the 21st? Whose blood were they cleaning up on the 19th then? And how did Savannah manage to get past her family and the police without being noticed to give this stranger neighbor with the weed a free baby? That day of Savannah's case was tragic and gruesome and every loved one's worst nightmare, but there was a tiny glimmer of light. After days and days of little Hazley Joe being in protective custody, Ashton was finally able to see his daughter. The DNA still hadn't come back yet, but they knew. He told the forum, I wish Savannah could have been there to enjoy it with me. After all these dark days, she lit my day right up. Another vigil was held for Savannah, and it felt different this time. This time, they had her sweet baby girl that both Ashton and Savannah's family were able to visit now, but they knew Savannah wouldn't be coming home. In an effort to get an update on the case, KVLY was able to get a statement from police, who said that her autopsy wasn't complete yet, but her cause of death had obviously been ruled a homicide. He couldn't comment on her manner of death or how Hazley Joe was born, but he did note that she was not two days old when she was found. He says that he doesn't know where that rumor came from and that they don't know how old the baby is, which kind of changes things. If Hazley Joe was two days old when she was found, that would have meant Savannah was alive for at least three days after she went missing. But now that window of time is open. There's no longer any narrowed time frame between when Savannah went missing and when she gave birth, other than the fact that it had to have happened sometime after 1.30 p.m. on the 19th. Maybe there wasn't a second location. Maybe this had happened in that apartment. But if so, why hadn't the canines found anything? Unless police were holding information back. On September 7th, 2019, Savannah was laid to rest. People.com reports that more than 1,000 people attended, wearing red shirts in honor of her and other missing and murdered indigenous women. She was taken to her final resting place in a horse-drawn carriage followed by 10 horses, one without a rider, in honor of Savannah. On September 12th, the DNA results were in and confirmed what everyone already knew, that the baby taken from apartment 5 was in fact Savannah's baby, and Ashton was given full custody. He told the son, she is the only good thing that can come out of this. Two weeks passed until Brooke and William had what felt like a long-awaited court date, and both of them pled not guilty to all of their charges. Neither of them admitting to murder, William claiming Brooke handed him a baby in a bloody bathroom on the 19th, and Brooke claiming Savannah just dropped Hazley Joe off in the middle of the night on the 21st. 
October passes without much news. November passes with nothing. But on December 3rd, the Grand Forks Herald comes out with a piece detailing the story of an inmate who says that William told him everything while he was in jail. He told the outlet that Brooke had told William she was pregnant and even showed him her baby bump. According to this inmate, William thought she'd been pregnant for eight months or so. The informant tells the outlet that while he won't go into detail about exactly what William told him about the afternoon of the 19th, he says that William wants to plead guilty, he just wants the death penalty off the table. But North Dakota doesn't have the death penalty and hasn't since 1973. Unless William thinks it's going to become a federal case since Savannah's body crossed state lines. The only way that would happen, though, would be if any of their crimes against Savannah and Hazley Joe had taken place across two state lines. Her body crossing into Minnesota by way of the river wouldn't qualify. That being said, if he wants to plead guilty to the conspiracy charges to avoid the death penalty, as the inmate says, it sounds like there might be a lot more to this story. Three days after that report came out, William had another court date. The forum reports that Savannah's parents and baby Hazley Joe were there in the pews, and everyone waited to see if that informant was right, if William was going to change his plea to guilty. But he didn't, and instead, a trial date was set. The waiting continued, but not without news. The High Plains Reader dropped an article that no one saw coming. As it turns out, Brooke was a very avid journal keeper. Great for justice, bad for her. In one of her last journal entries, she'd written down notes about a home birth, including emergency plans and supplies. According to the High Plains Reader, the list of supplies included items that she wouldn't even have had access to, like a CPR bag for infants, medication for a newborn that's experiencing excessive bleeding, an IV port, and Pitocin. But... Her notes weren't just about a home birth, though. They seemed to include information about what you'd need for a C-section, which makes no fucking sense if you plan on birthing alone, which, let's be honest, she wasn't because she wasn't pregnant. The C-section list included two blades and eight clamps. Brooke made a note that she could get this done in 12 hours. Brooke had at least five children of her own. She was well aware that you don't get to choose how long you're in labor. It seemed like she was putting a clock on whoever was going to be having this home birth, beginning with Pitocin, and if necessary, ending with two blades and eight clamps. With this sick and twisted, fucked up find, the walls were closing in on Brooke, and in a move that shocked everyone, on December 11th, she changed her plea to guilty. In a letter to a reporter, the Twin Cities Pioneer Press quotes her as saying that she was ashamed of what she had done. Within two months, she was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, and Brooke told the world what she said really happened. And forewarning, it's as bad, if not worse, than you think. Brooke said that when Savannah got to her apartment on the afternoon of the 19th, Brooke instigated an argument with her about cats. 
Eventually, WDAY reports that Brooks says that she pushed Savannah and on the way down, Savannah hit her head on the sink and passed out, which is when Brooke reportedly went to the kitchen, grabbed a blade and performed a C-section on her on the bathroom floor, cutting her entire abdomen open from one hip to another. The Grand Forks Herald reports that Brooks said Savannah would go in and out of consciousness while she was cutting Hazley Joe out of her. Ashton was at this sentencing hearing with Hazley Joe, and the photo of him holding her and sobbing will break you. On August 19, 2018, Haley Joe turned one, but it also marked the one year anniversary of Savannah's murder. In the following months, William was back in court and pleading guilty, but not to all of his charges. William pled guilty to the kidnapping and false information charges, but he was going to take the conspiracy to commit murder charge to trial. And on September 19th of 2018, it began. Reporters from WDAY and the forum did an incredible job live tweeting from this trial. So shout out to Angeline McCall and Sarah Rudlang from WDAY and Raju Tajuvula from the forum for literally everything you're about to hear. This whole trial was to determine whether or not William had any knowledge of a plan to kill Savannah, and if so, to determine his guilt or innocence. So it was heavily based on whether or not he was aware that this was going to happen. It's a complicated charge. Sometimes it's easier to prove someone did something than it is to prove that they knew something was going to happen. The trial starts with the story of Brooke's fake pregnancy. William had broken up with Brooke in December of 2016, but in an effort to win him back, she told him that she was pregnant, showed him ultrasound photos, sent him a photo of a positive pregnancy test, and even sent him audio clips of heartbeat sounds. Brooke had previously had her tubes tied, but he just figured somehow they defied all odds and she was pregnant. Which, whatever, weirder shit has happened. In her apartment, she kept a list of dates. One was the date of her last period. One was the day she claims her pregnancy was confirmed. Another from when she says she got an ultrasound. And then her due date, which she claimed was August 6th. There was also a calendar on display in the apartment. It was one of the dry erase ones, and she had crossed out every single day through August until the 19th. The rest of the days went uncrossed. Additionally, she had a note of minute-by-minute contractions that never happened. Brooke was incredibly elaborate in her lie that led to murder and kidnapping, but this wasn't her trial. She had already pled guilty. This was about William. So it should come as no surprise that Brooke took the witness stand and laid out in much more detail what she says happened to Savannah. Brooke claims that she'd actually convinced herself that she was pregnant until August. On what she claimed was her due date, she says she was talking to William about what to do during the birth of this imaginary baby, and according to her, he laughed at her and told her that she wasn't pregnant. I mean, she certainly didn't look nine months pregnant, he'd never gone to a doctor's appointment with her, and here was her due date and there was no baby. Brooke, feeling like she'd been called out on her bullshit, reports that she felt like she needed to produce a baby and that it didn't matter how she got it. When William mentioned something about the neighbor girl being really pregnant, she took that as steal her baby. Though it doesn't seem like he actually said that to her, even though that's how she took it. 
Like before, she said that she asked Savannah to go up to her apartment, argued with her about cats, pushed her, and when Savannah was unconscious on the bathroom floor, went to the kitchen, got a blade, and performed a C-section on her while she went in and out of consciousness. When Hazley Joe was born, she says she cut the umbilical cord and wrapped her in a towel. But in her eyes, Hazley Joe wasn't Hazley Joe. Brooke had named her Phoenix. According to Brooke, when William got home from work that day, he walked into the bathroom to see Brooke on the floor with Savannah and asked if she was still alive. According to her, she said that she didn't know and asked him to help her. She says that William then walked out, took off all of his clothes except for his underwear and shoes, came back into the bathroom with a rope, put the rope around Savannah's neck and said if she wasn't, she is now. Brooke testified that after they both cleaned up the bathroom, they wrapped up Savannah's body, put it in the bathroom closet, and she washed William off in the shower. This all had to have happened within the span of maybe an hour, because according to Brooke, baby Hazley Joe was in their bedroom when Savannah's father came to their door a little after 2.30. The baby and Savannah were both in the apartment both of the times police searched it that day. The following day, the 20th, Brooks says that they moved Savannah from the bathroom closet and into a dresser that she says William had hollowed out. According to her, Savannah was in that dresser when police did their third search and Hazley Joe was covered with blankets in the bed next to William. She says that they cleaned the bathroom at least five times and that William had told her to clean around the door frame and the toilet with a toothbrush. Brooke claims that she asked William multiple times if they could just take the baby downstairs to Savannah's family, and according to her, he said they couldn't give the baby back. Around 3 a.m. on the 22nd, three days after Savannah was murdered, Brooke says that she helped William take the dresser outside and put it into his Jeep. She says they kissed goodbye and in one last request asked him not to put Savannah in the river. She says that she never saw the dresser or Savannah after that. It was the defense's turn to question Brooke, and they asked her if she had had any conversations with William about killing Savannah and taking her baby, and she answered with, not explicitly. With Brooke's testimony on the books, William took the stand, which almost never happens in any trial involving murder. William testified that he never told her in any argument that she wasn't pregnant, and according to the forum, did notice physical changes in her and noted that she complained of different pregnancy-related discomforts. He claimed that when he came home from work and walked into the bathroom and heard the baby crying, he was elated that Brooke had had the baby. I'm sorry, but who's elated that their girlfriend had a baby in their apartment bathroom and failed to so much as text you that she was in labor? Anywho, William says that when he saw Savannah, she wasn't moving and her lips were blue. So blue that he said it looked like she'd eaten blue candy. He said he took his clothes off so he wouldn't get blood on them and admits to lifting her body while they put her in trash bags and moved her into the bathroom closet. He also admits to putting her body in a dresser so that they could move it out of the apartment without it looking like they were moving a body out of an apartment. Where that part of the story differs from Brooks, though, is that he says Brooke and Hazley Joe went with him to the bridge where Savannah, inside the dresser, was thrown into the river. 
While William admits to all of this and it's insanely fucked up, his charge isn't for desecration or accessory or even accessory after the fact. His charge is conspiracy to commit murder. And according to him, he thought Brooke was pregnant and that Savannah was already dead when he got home. He claims that he doesn't know where the rope came from that was found still around Savannah's neck and that it was already there when he got there. One of William's co-workers testified and said that William had told him that his girlfriend was crazy and that she was overdue. That being said, he usually worked until 5 p.m., but his co-worker said that he went home at 2.30 p.m. on the day of Savannah's murder. An inmate from the jail William was at testified and said that William told him that he'd walked into the most fucked up thing you can imagine and that Savannah was dead when he got there. William had also told him about cleaning up the blood, wrapping her body in trash bags, putting her body in a dresser, and taking the dresser out of the apartment. An inmate from Brooks Jail also testified, and she seemed pretty pissed while she was on the stand. She claims that Brooke had told her that she had strangled Savannah, dragged her into the bathroom, and took her baby because she thought William was having an affair with her. According to the informant, Brooke said that she'd done the C-section in three minutes, which would be emergency surgeon level fast without hurting the baby. She said that Brooke told her William was shaking and crying when he opened the door. You have to ask, though, why he would be crying or shaking if he didn't know what he was going to find before he opened the door. She added that Brooke told her that she'd hid Savannah's body in the bathroom closet for two days and that police had missed her twice. Savannah was actually missed three times and was hidden in the closet and the dresser. That being said, she does seem to know some information that she otherwise shouldn't. Brooke, on the other hand, denies ever saying that. On September 27, 2018, the prosecution and the defense rested their case and the jury was briefed on what conspiracy means, because like we said earlier, this charge is really specific. They have to decide whether or not William was aware of a plan to murder Savannah. After a day of deliberations, the jury reached a verdict. They found William not guilty. A month later, William was back in court for the sentencing of his other two charges, the kidnapping and false information charges, and was sentenced to life in prison, but with the possibility of parole after 25 years. However, he appealed that sentence, and in October of 2019, KAAL reports that his sentence was reduced to 21 years. In 2020, Savannah's Act was passed, which Congress.gov says will develop regionally appropriate guidelines for responses to cases of missing and murdered Native Americans, report statistics of missing or murdered Native Americans, and additionally improve tribal access to federal databases. Savannah was just a 22-year-old girl who was counting down the days until her baby was born. She worked hard, she loved hard, and she was about to start her new life as parents with the man she had loved since high school. She had nothing but the entire world ahead of her when it was stolen from her along with the baby she was carrying. Savannah's family has an immeasurable amount of love for Hazley Joe, who against all odds survived the attack on her mother, but this sweet little girl will have to live the rest of her life knowing that the day she entered the world, her mother was taken. For all photos pertaining to Savannah's case, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about her case. 
If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, which is today. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 